some place that we went to, but it's a place that we've been reading about and thinking about uh, in a Christian context. And so hopefully, as we look at some of these things, it'll be faith-inspiring, faith-affirming, and will be an opportunity for you to get a little bit of, uh, of a glimpse for, um, for what, what the land of the Bible is like. I'll get that remote, too, if you got it. All right. Well, as we begin, let's just say one more word of prayer. Dear God, I pray that you will um, bless our hearts today as we see uh, some images from the land that you chose to um, lead a people and inspire us with all these stories. Help it to be more than just pictures, but speak to us in some way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we learned a lot of different things as we went to Israel. The first thing that we learned is it is humid there. Humid. Us people from Modesto that are used to dry heat, we're not used to the humid heat, especially when we've flown to Tel Aviv, which is right there on the coast, especially hot and sticky there in the summertime. So that's just our immediate impression. But uh, something that I was impressed by was when I think of Israel, I often think of it in dry, desolate, barren images in my mind. There were many places that looked like this. Very beautiful, very green. Uh, Much like California, where we have green grass for a couple months and then dry the rest of the year, they have kind of a similar thing that happens. Although there definitely are some spots that look like this. Super desolate, super barren. This, by the way, is, is on the road up from Jericho to Jerusalem, which Jesus told a story, the parable, or not parable, a story of the Good Samaritan. Uh the man who was attacked by thieves. And it looked like this, probably, in a road like this. So you can imagine how important it was for that man to get help before he died of the elements there on the road to Jericho. There were other elements that surprised us, like, whoa, they have cactus that are really tall. And some of our our friends um, who are from Mexico were like, oh, I love that, I want to eat that, because that was what they grew up eating. Uh, Jordan River. You know, as we were to look at it today, we'd say, man, that thing is so small. It's really narrow. It's not very big. Um, And of course, if you're picturing in your mind when you read the Bible, the Jordan River as the Mississippi, you're going to be totally shocked when you see it in Israel because it's really not that wide. Now, there is a reason it's not so wide right now. It's because water is one of the most valuable commodities, right? And so... They're using it for irrigation. They're taking it out of the river for survival and so forth. So the river is not as wide today as it was back in Bible times. Uh, In fact, the Dead Sea is dying because not enough water is going down to it from the Jordan River and from the other rivers that flow in. And so it's literally shrinking in size. And if time continues, the Dead Sea could eventually theoretically dry up, um, which is a pretty interesting thought. Here you can see some Orthodox believers baptizing themselves. You can buy a robe and you can baptize yourself. I was considering giving Sarah an an impromptu surprise baptism at the Jordan River, but I decided not to do it after all, and it was probably a good thing that I didn't. Right next to the Jordan River, this is just like a mile away from the river, and this is what it looks like. So when you read stories about people going out to hear John the Baptist preaching, 
uh, and baptizing, they had to walk through land that looked like this. So it wasn't just a simple stroll through a green park to get to the river. This was a, a committed trek to get out there. And you wanted to make sure you had enough water with you and so forth. Thanks, Frank. Um, other places, as you're heading back up towards Jerusalem, there are these cliffs. And in a lot of the cliffs, there are caves. Uh, lots of caves. So when you read stories about David and his men hiding out in caves from King Saul, it looked something like this which is more, more impressive in my mind because, number one, I'm thinking, where did they get the water to hide in the caves? There are some springs in some of these mountains. Uh, where did they get their food? How did they survive? Uh, in fact, there are Bedouin people who live in tents, uh, in, in land, <coughs> excuse me, land that looks about like this. And it's just amazing because we're riding around in our air-conditioned bus with Wi-Fi, and we're looking out the window at these Bedouin people in their homes, and it's just swelteringly hot outside. But somehow they've figured out a way to live in conditions like that. And by the way, sometimes people are wondering, like, well, where did the money come from to go on a trip like this? No, the conference didn't spend any more money. They just took money. They canceled a pastor's retreat that they normally have. Um, and then they said, you can put your educational allowance for the last year and this year and next year, and we'll put it all in a big pot, and you can go uh, like that. So it didn't cost any extra. Um, we just canceled kind of some boring meetings, in my opinion. It's, it's fun. The, the good part are the meals and the, the free time, but the rest of the time you're just sitting. So to get to go to Israel was a great trade-off in my mind. So as I mentioned, water is an essential commodity in the Middle East, as it is becoming increasingly valuable here in California. So they had to do things to get water to their civilizations. This aqueduct was built by Herod the Great. And it extends for miles and miles and miles, all to get water to Caesarea Maritima. Caesarea was a town that Herod built. Uh, he created a, an artificial harbor there, and he, he built a lot of amazing things. I realized that Herod was an amazing builder. <clears throat> we, we criticize him because he was a bad guy. But as far as architecture and actually getting things done, he was pretty amazing in that regard. But what's incredible is that they made all of these things, of course, without any power tools. Uh, they found a way to build these things uh, and to get water from miles away to towns like Caesarea. In other cases, they dug cisterns. This is a cistern, uh, and it's plastered on the walls. The plaster is multiple inches thick. Um, this was at the, the site of Megiddo, next to, um, anyways, over there. There's, there's a lot I could say, but I can't say it all because then it would take 10 days uh, the length of the trip. There's our tour guide in the back. He was a real, a real interesting character. We, we loved him a lot. Now, sometimes they had to create pipes. These are actually pipes, as you can see from the middle. All of these things, somebody had to dig out uh, of limestone or whatever the stone they were using. Um, so it, it was incredible to see how they did it, and it made you appreciate Jesus' comments about living water and about the importance of water. Here is an example. Did anyone see the movie back in the day, Judah Ben-Hur? Ben-Hur, yeah, Ben-Hur. So there was that famous chariot racing scene. This was one of those type of arenas where they would race um, down a big oval feature and they'd come back and this was right there at Caesarea, 
which was where Paul was imprisoned for about two years before he made his appeal to go to Rome. So Paul, before he goes to Rome, he's in this city that was designed upon Roman principles. Romans had to have water. They had good plumbing in their cities. They had to have good entertainment, or at least what they considered to be good entertainment. They also did some gladiator type stuff here in this spot. Uh, amphitheaters, uh, as you can see here. Here's a, this was from a different location, but uh, an example of their architecture and their building. So they had to have water, they had to have entertainment, and they had to have good bathing, good bathhouses. So right here at Caesarea Maritima, that's where Paul spent two years before he went to Rome. So he got a flavor for Roman life, Roman culture, and then he made his appeal, and it was out of the harbor right there that he sailed for Rome. This is the same spot where Cornelius, the man in the book of Acts, asked Peter to come talk to them about God. Uh, Peter received that vision where God was saying, it's okay to interact with the Gentiles. Go ahead and do it. And so Peter goes there to this city uh, where there are pagan Romans, where there are Jews, and then he helps found a Christian faith group there in Caesarea. But one of our favorite spots in Israel was the Galilee region. The Sea of Galilee was just beautiful, and as we kind of joked amongst ourselves, we loved it so much because you can't build a cathedral over the whole lake. Can't build a church there. A lot of the, the sacred spots in Israel have a church built there, which is nice because it helps kind of memorialize the spot where they think things happened, but it also totally takes away the feel for what it must have been like in those days. So we went to like the spot where Jesus supposedly was born, and we looked at it, and we said, what in the world is this? I'm, I'm gaining, you know, nothing from this. But when you go to Galilee, and you get out in the water, the water really hasn't changed that much in 2,000 years. The look of the lake hasn't changed a whole lot. There have been some buildings built around the outside. But you get on the water, and you can just picture in your mind's eye, that's maybe what it was like on the clear days, or on those calm days for the disciples, for Jesus. Imagining, what, what did the storm look like? What was it like when Peter stepped out of the boat? Pretty awesome. You know, just about 25 years ago, there was an amazing discovery during drought on the Galilee region. Some fishermen were walking along, and they stumbled across something on the beach, which was abnormally big because the water level was down. They came across this boat. This boat is about 2,000 years old. Wood that was miraculously preserved in the mud for 2,000 years. It's an example of the type of boat that Peter and his crew may have fished from, the type of boat Jesus may have sat in and crossed uh, across the sea with. Perhaps they even sat in that boat, although there's no, no way to tell one way or the other. But it's an amazing story about how they found it, how they preserved it, and to get it back to where they needed to go, they, they, they surrounded it in foam, and then they actually had to sail it. They floated it um, to where they were able to transport it. You can look it up probably on YouTube. Um, but just amazing. That's the kind of boat that they would have ridden in. And here are the, the surrounding hillsides. Uh, while there's been some, some work and they're, uh, they're growing some things, you can imagine that this is the kind of setting at which the feeding of the 5,000 happened in. Right there, along the, the banks of the Lake of Galilee, is the town of Capernaum, which is the hometown for Peter. Um, 
This is a synagogue that was built probably upon the foundations of the original synagogue that was there in Peter's day. You can see the, the, the white stone, which is the later stone, and then the black stone, the volcanic stone, was probably the original foundations where Peter, where Jesus would have worshipped in those days. But you can notice its design, which was a fairly common design, where there's kind of some steps around the outside that you can sit on, and sometimes they had balconies on top, and then the, the presenter, the speaker, would come up here in the front, and he would present. Right there, near that site, is also the spot that's believed by many to be the home of Peter, or at least the, the place that was built upon Peter's house. And apparently, Peter was, was fairly well-to-do in his profession, and very interesting that that may possibly be the very spot where Peter lived. Um, anyone have any idea what this is? Any, any guesses? What's it look like? I heard it. Yeah, this, these are, this is a toilet. So you sit uh, on, on two of these things and, and you take care of what needs to happen. Here's a trough that they had water. This was a, in a Roman-styled city. Water would flow through here. You had a kind of a communal sponge that you would use. Let's just say that, that things have really progressed. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of a germaphobe, and I wouldn't have done well. But you can see it was a very communal experience. Um, bathroom all along here. Uh, you can see our group resting in the shade. Um, yeah, it was a time where people would come together. They would talk. They would gossip. They would do you know, all sorts of things in the process of taking care of their business. Now, if you were wealthy, this was found in the city of David, which may have been built by David. Uh, this is a private commode. You can see the hole there in the center and kind of some, some cutouts here for where you would sit and be comfortable in the privacy of your own home. Now, in modern-day Israel, this is what it more looks like. Uh, if you've been to Europe or other places, you've got to pay to use the bathroom. Two shekels, which is a little over 50 cents. So whenever we came to a free toilet, we just were so happy uh, because it just was such a real blessing. Um, another favorite spot that Sarah and I got to go to, a little bonus excursion, um, is called Hezekiah's Tunnel. Um, I want to open up our Bibles real quickly to 2 Kings chapter 20. We're not going to spend much time here, but I just want you to look at this real quick. 2 Kings chapter 20. And verse 20. You know, the Bible is not written like a novel. It's not written like a historical biography. It's not written like one of those big textbooks that try and provide all of these details and and the expression on people's faces and, and everything like that. It just gives some of the bare facts in many of the stories. Sometimes we get a little bit of a, of a greater glimpse. The purpose of the Bible wasn't to be like the books that we read uh, or are written today. Um, it was written a little bit differently. But look at verse 20 in 2 Kings chapter 20. This is concluding the story of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. And it says, As for the other events in Hezekiah's reign, all his achievements and how he made the pool and the tunnel by which he brought water into the city, are they not written in, in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? So it mentions a pool and what else? A tunnel. 
It's like Hezekiah, you know, just concluded his life. And, oh yeah, by the way, he made a tunnel and he made a pool, blah, 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 blah. But it's written about elsewhere. We don't have those writings. Uh, so here we are in that very tunnel, which goes from the Gihon Springs underneath through the limestone. Uh, it was over a, a half kilometer long. Uh, it felt really long because parts of it, you're, you're bending down, walking like this. Sometimes the water's up to your knees. Um, but this is the tunnel that Hezekiah had built. And it's incredible. It, it's just incredible. All the work that went into it. Sometimes the ceiling is really high. Sometimes it's really low. And there was a plaque that they found. Actually, it was an Adventist um, guy that found it in the archives because it had been lost. Uh, but he went and looked through and found this plaque. Siegfried Horn from Andrews University um, History. And the plaque describes how they did it and how the workers, when they're hammering away with their chisels and their picks, they could start to hear the sound of one another because um, they started from opposite sides. And what's amazing is they met basically exactly where they needed to. Without the technology of today, they stayed at the same level, they stayed going the same direction, and they did it. Uh, and they were calling out to one another as their picks, and there's a spot where you can see that the picks are going the... the, the Chiseling is coming from one way and then the opposite way, so you can tell that that's where they met. But it's just incredible. One little teeny reference in the Bible, but then here's the broader story. In fact, do you remember the story where Joab sneaks into the city through a tunnel? That was a part of this. It, this was built later, but there was a, sh they call it Warren's shaft. Uh, it's, a, it's this vertical shaft that they climbed up to sneak into the city. Um, so behind every story, I was reminded there is a much bigger story, and there's so many more details. And I think that sometimes there are stories in the Bible that we, we don't understand, and we, we maybe misunderstand God's character through those stories, but if we only knew all the details, it would make a, lo a whole lot more sense. The picture would be a lot more complete. Well, it said that he built a pool. That's the Pool of Siloam. They just discovered this about 20 uh, years ago or so. Um, and they just uncovered this end here. There, there are some steps there leading into it. And this is probably what it looked like. Um, so they discovered this part right here. Uh, it's amazing. Anytime that they're doing uh, digging and stuff, it seems like they often find things of significance. Um, but it's difficult because sometimes there's some very important stuff on the surface. And so, um, or it's it's underneath the, the Muslim territory or something, and so they're not allowed to do as much excavation as they'd like to. But there's so much history there, so much history. Um, here's an interesting spot. This was the Grotto of Pan. Uh, Pan was a god that was worshipped um, second and third century before Christ. Um, there used to be a spring, but that, right here, and this was a, this was a pool, um, they didn't think that they could find the bottom of it, but there was an earthquake that shifted the spring. But... Uh, this was very interesting because this is what you read about in the Bible called Caesarea Philippi, this location here. Uh, it probably looked something like this during the time of Jesus. And this is the, the location where Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say, who do you say that I am? And this is where Peter said, you are the Christ. So in the backdrop of this pagan worship where they would, once a year they'd throw a person into this pool uh, as an offering to the God, a pan, uh, which I think our professor said may have been connected to Baal worship also. 
In that context, that culture, Peter and the disciples get it, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And of course, you can't go to Israel without going to the Dead Sea. Uh, super awesome experience. I've got some audio here. I'm going to play a short video clip. John Talay going for the dip. Ready? Yeah. Well, you could have scratched it on something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there he is. Crazy. That's awesome. Look, Mom, no hands. Yes. Oh, my goodness. No work at all. Oh, my goodness. You just hear all these pastors saying, oh, this is so awesome. Uh, it was amazing, the stuff that you were able to do. It's really incredible. Uh, my friend that was videoing on his first dip in, he actually got his face and eyes wet, and it really hurt. If you had any cuts, if you'd shaved or anything, you, you really felt it. Um, but a really amazing experience there. Um, this is a, a wine press, an ancient wine press. You can see there's a little groove here where they'd stomp on the grapes here, and the, the juice would flow down here into a pit where they'd collect it. And um, again, for a germaphobe, that sounds horrifying to drink juice that you've stomped on with your feet. But they would take their shoes off because if you had shoes on, you might crush the seeds, which are more bitter, and it would make the, the, the juice taste terrible. So they did it without their shoes on. Again, I'm thankful that I was born in this day and age. You've read stories about people and the blood being put on the horns of the altar or grabbing on the horns of the altar. This is an example of an altar that has horns. We got to go to the archaeological museum there in Jerusalem. Um, have you heard of Sennacherib? Sennacherib was a pagan king that attacked Israel. His story is written in multiple books of the Bible. This is a depiction from, the, from his perspective of conquering the town of Lachish. You can read about that, but you can see um, how they interpreted the battle, and he's over here collecting the spoil, and here are some people that are being carried away, hostage, and so forth. Again, just showing you, outside of the Bible, events, people, histories being confirmed. This is actually the earliest bit of the Old Testament that we have. It, it dates 400 years before the, old, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was just a little silver um, amulet or something that had a passage from the book of Numbers. About 700 years before Jesus, uh, here we have evidence for the scriptures. Not all oil lamps look the same. Some were really imaginative and creative and probably gave off a lot more light. Here's a Roman soldier helmet from the time of Christ. Um, this here, you can't really read it too well, um, but this has Pontius Pilate on it. Uh, again, just more evidence saying the people mentioned in the Gospels, they were real people. Uh, here's their name inscribed on stone. Uh, have you ever heard of Caiaphas? Caiaphas, he put Jesus to death. Here's one of his um, personal or his family's bone boxes. They call them ossuaries. After the body had decayed, they'd gather the bones and put them into these boxes. Here's the guy who put Jesus to death. Here's his box or his family's box. He, he had multiples. Um, again, not a fairy tale. These people were real people. Uh, here's evidence for that. This is um, a typical posture for Baal, the god of the storms, and he, he would be holding a lightning bolt. So all those stories that involved Baal worship, it was over little, little teeny gods, representations that looked like this. Um, of course, representing in their mind a bigger deity than that. Um, 
This guy here is interesting. It, it's one of three kings, and this may be the bust of the head of Ahab. So, uh, not 100% sure, but if so, he was kind of a good-looking guy, uh, even though he did a lot of bad things. Again, not just a fictitious, made-up legend. These are real people. Um, here's the earliest reference to Israel, coming from a very, very long time ago. Okay, this one's really interesting. Anybody know who these people are? These are representatives. Uh, it's been blown up for our, our viewing um, ease, but this is a depiction of the Philistines. So, in the words of our professor, they kind of looked more Native American-like, and they had these headdresses that were kind of like mohawks that they would wear. So when you picture David and Goliath and, and the Philistines and all that, they looked more like this, which is, is a pretty interesting deal. And there were a lot of these seals or stamps um, from, you know, from Hezekiah. They have one from the guy who, who was the scribe for Jeremiah, Baruch. Jeremiah told him what to write down. Baruch was the scribe that wrote Jeremiah. They've got his seal. They found it. Real people, real stories, not fairy tales. And of course, you know that there's a lot of political turmoil in the Middle East. As you go into Bethlehem, the, time, the place of Jesus' birth, you have to go through security. Big wall, taller than the Berlin Wall. Um, on the Palestinian side, it's very interesting, the artwork that you see. Uh, Jesus wore these Air Bethlehems in game six against the Romans. Uh, so they have a good sense of humor. Uh, you can Google it later, but there's one of Donald Trump. Uh, you know, you can Google later, just Donald Trump, Bethlehem wall, and you'll come up with it. Uh, interesting to see uh, all of these things. But as you go into the Church of the Nativity, uh, the doorway right now is very, very low, and the idea is humility and, and so forth. And as I said, you don't see a lot in the Church of the Nativity, but what was fascinating to me was when we went into a cave that was connected to the church that's now been turned into a nice room. In this cave is where they found the bones of hundreds and hundreds of babies. These were the bones, they say, from the babies that were killed connected to Herod. Uh, around the time of Jesus. So Jesus escaped, but these little ones did not, unfortunately. Very real history. As you come into Jerusalem, you realize it's a city that has multiple faiths. You have the Jewish faith. Uh, the, the old city of Jerusalem has four quadrants. Christian, Armenian, Jewish, and Muslim. Uh, and, it, and multiple times a day, you get to hear uh, the prayer song from the Muslim faith. It was a very interesting experience having all these different faiths trying to work together. Uh, narrow streets there in Jerusalem. Uh, very interesting feel to it. You go through the markets and you can see all sorts of wonderful things. And I told you last week how great a barterer my wife is. Um, wonderful things to see. Uh, they have some interesting things. Uh, guns and Moses. <laughs> Similar sentimentality to uh, some people here in our country. Uh, wonderful food there, obviously. I can never eat Sabra hummus with the same pleasure again because of the stuff we got to have there. 
Um, the Wailing Wall was a very interesting experience. They come and pray there because this is the, the western wall of the Temple Mount. There's no more temple up there. It's been destroyed. The, the Romans destroyed it. Um, and the Muslims currently occupy the top. And so they say, we're not going to go up there, but we're going to get as close as we can to where the temple used to be. And that's where we're going to have our prayers. Uh, this was the first day of the month, so it was an extra big service. Um, but it was also a controversial service. There's kind of some tension there with different factions of Judaism, and there, there were some certain ladies there that were causing, well, that people were reacting against. And so you'll hear the whistling. That's people trying to interrupt and disrupt the praying of certain groups of people. Uh, so it was a very interesting uh, experience. So all faith groups have their own conflict, right? Uh, unfortunately, and, and we were witness to that. You can get a sense for some of the perspective of the size of these blocks, and these are actually the really small ones. I'm gonna show you some big ones here in a moment. This was on the corner of, of the wall, the Temple Mount, and it, the picture doesn't do justice to actually how high it was, but when you read the story where the, Jesus is brought to the corner of the Temple Mount to to say, hey, jump off by Satan, God will catch you. You get a sense for just how high it was and how big of a scale it was. And here are, here are stones that are part of the destruction from the temple in 70 AD. Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. And here we have evidence of the fulfillment of that very thing. And what's amazing is so many of these places that were destroyed, the blocks are so heavy and so massive I mean, it would just be a lot easier to repurpose the buildings for yourself, right? These things are, are multiple tons. Why take the effort to knock them over? Uh, but yet they did, uh, in fulfillment to God's word. Here's a street where for sure Jesus walked, uh, an ancient street right there alongside the temple. Uh, up on the Temple Mount, this is solid gold there uh, that they did from a gift from Saudi Arabia not too long ago. It's not a mosque, it's just a sacred spot in the Muslim tradition. Uh, they believe that that's where Muhammad ascended to heaven on a horse. Um, so it's a very large area. Herod expanded this in his day from Solomon's temple. Um, and there's this interesting spot here that nobody's really 100% sure what this is commemorating. Um, but our professor has, has said it's possible that that may be the spot where the most holy place used to be. Uh, by lining it up, it, it appears to be in the right location for that. Now, I, I said I would show you some of the bigger blocks. This, this block here, um, we'll do a short video clip and you'll see how, how long it is. This is the start of one of the foundation stones for Herod's temple. So feet tall. So that's actually not even the longest. There's one that's 46 feet long, uh, estimated at least 600 tons. So, really, 
Herod, very bad guy, but his engineering and his ability to make people move and move massive things was incredible uh, as you think about it. This part uh, of the wall here is probably built by David. There is some debate amongst Israeli archaeologists. Some say yes, some say no. I asked our professor, I said, why, why would there be Israeli archaeologists not wanting to pin this to, to David's time? And he said, basically, there's two different schools of thought, two different ways that the data is approached. There are some who are wanting to make it fit the Bible, and there are others that aren't. Those that aren't, he suspects, have a political motivation. Because if you have a, a, a story that says, we came in, inhabited the land, we took it from other people, because God gave it to us, uh, and now we are here, we, we're claiming that this is our land, that's not as compelling of a reason to have total occupation of the land as the, the new theory, which says we just emerged from within the Canaanite culture. Uh, we grew organically here. So in the tension and the wrestling for Jerusalem, for Israel, um, there may be some political motivations that are impacting the archaeology. Um, these are stairs that were there in the time of Jesus when it says Song of Ascents in the book of Psalms. They would travel up these stairs and they would sing those songs of ascent, traveling up. This is a model of Jerusalem, but it, the stairs are right here going up to the Temple Mount here. Uh, and this is the old city of David. Um, palace area. Walking along up by, the, t by the, the western wall, you see sometimes these spots where the pavement is broken into. That's because there were Jews during the, the time of 70 AD that were hiding in the sewers down below, and the Romans were breaking in to the sewer. Here's an example. We got to walk through those sewers from the time of Jesus. Uh, it's clean now, so <laughs> you don't have to worry about germs. But really, quite... Um, impactful when you think about what people were going through in trying to survive. And of course, some of them in 73 AD went down to Herod's winter palace called Masada. Uh, it's up on top of this thing down here by the Dead Sea. Masada was like the last stronghold against the Romans uh, that were just conquering everything. It was an amazing palace uh, and Herod did a lot of powerful engineering to get water to this desolate and, and forsaken place. Uh, this is remnants of some of his um, deluxe views, his penthouse suite, as it were. But eventually the Romans made uh, a siege ramp, and they started slinging these massive-sized balls, catapults, uh, slinging these stones, and it just was terrorizing the people who were up there. And uh, eventually Masada fell. But what was interesting in this picture, you can kind of see a line that runs along here, and then there's like a square. Sorry, it's pretty small. The Romans, when they came, they knew that Masada had like a seven-year water supply, and they had a big food supply, and so they built their own little encampment. They could have just put up tents, but they said, no, 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 we're, we're building a wall around our little encampment, and we're going to build a wall around the entire Masada location. So in other words, nobody is going to escape this place. They had guards posted every so often, and it was this mental warfare that the Romans were waging upon the people uh, on top of this thing. And eventually, the story says that once they knew that they had lost, they, they all committed suicide. Uh, but it just goes to show the tactics that the Romans used. Uh, and of course, as we think about the crucifixion, here's an example 
of uh, a heel bone with a Roman nail through it. You get a sense for just the ruthless nature uh, that the Romans had as they approached their enemies. Here is uh, some olive trees in what may be remnants of the Garden of Gethsemane. Hard to know for sure. But olive trees don't have rings on them. So you can't tell its exact age, but this tree here is a very, very old tree. It may be 2,000 years old. Uh, they start to get hollow, and they start growing from the outsides as they're really, really old. So it's very possible that some of these trees were young saplings when Jesus was there. Um, this is the Church of the Holy Sepul Sepulcher, where some say Jesus is buried. We didn't uh, appreciate the churches as much because it's kind of obstructing what you can see there, but it is interesting architecture. Um, there's another spot that may be the, the location of Christ's burial uh, as we come to a close here. This is called the Garden Tomb, and it was a wonderful experience because they said, hey, no charge, come on in. If you need water, you can use water. If you need the restrooms, use the restrooms. Have your group here. Uh, they, did a they helped facilitate a communion service for us, all at no charge. They said what Christ gave was free, and what we're giving you is free also. And this location fits the description uh, of many of the things in the Gospel account, so it may have been. But as our, as our guide there said, the important part is not, was Jesus buried here or was he buried there? The important part is, is Jesus in your heart? Uh, is he in your life? And we know both tombs are empty. None of the tombs have the body of Jesus. So wherever he was buried, he is alive. And the big question this morning is, is he alive in our heart? Hopefully this morning you've been able to see some pictures that just remind you these are real stories we're talking about. These are real people. And I could have showed you a lot more, and there, there's so much more we could have said, but it's not cleverly devised fables that we're following. We're following things that, are, that have historical significance. And have all the questions been answered through archaeology? Of course not. But there are so many reasons to hang our faith upon it. Um, and the best one is that Jesus' tomb was empty, back on Sunday, Easter Sunday, and it's still empty today. I want to close with one passage here from the book Desire of Ages. Um, it says, Many feel that it would be a great privilege to visit the scenes of Christ's life on earth and to walk where he trod and to look upon the lake beside which he loved to teach and the hills and the valleys on which his eyes so often rested. It would be a privilege, and it was a privilege. It was awesome. But here's an even bigger point. We don't have to go to Nazareth or to Capernaum, or to Bethany, in order to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We shall find his footprints beside the sickbed, in the hovels of poverty, in the crowded alleys of the great city, and in every place where there are human hearts in need of consolation. In doing as Jesus did when on earth, we shall walk in his steps. Amen. See, you can go to Israel, it's a wonderful experience, but you don't have to, because Jesus isn't there any more than he is here. He's wanting to reach people in this community, in this church, in this area, and he wants to use you. So two things I hope you take from today. Number one, our faith is founded upon good reasons. But number two, Jesus wants us to be where he is right now, helping people that need help, loving people 
who need love. So go out this week and do that, and you will walk with Jesus where he currently is. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a reminder today about the historical significance uh, and reality of so many places and people and, and events. Um, but even more than that, thank you for the reality that you're alive, Lord Jesus, and that you want to use us to help others to know about you too. May we walk where you're walking today and each day. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a happy Sabbath, and we will see you next time.